0: A few years ago, an American fairy tale in London came true.
1: Meghan, I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage.
0: Well, kind of. For a lot of people, including me, Meghan Markle is the closest thing we have to an American princess. Harry, I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. But as we've learned recently, her happily ever after was kind of short-lived. From the minute Prince Harry and Meghan Markle announced their engagement, the UK press seemed to be a little obsessed with the American actress, and the closer they got to the wedding, the more salacious the coverage got. There was speculation about Meghan's attitude and temperament and about her ability to be a proper duchess, and some of it had racist and sexist undertone. But the most invasive press coverage was about Meghan Markle's relationship with her father, Thomas Markle. The UK press was constantly running stories about where he lived, how much money he had and if he was on good terms with Meghan. And the answer to that question became clear when it was announced that Thomas Markle wouldn't be making the trip across the pond to see his daughter tie the knot. But following the latest dramatic twist in the royal wedding saga, it's looking almost certain that Meghan Markle's father will miss the ceremony as he's announced he's due to have heart surgery perhaps as soon as today.
2: Just three days to go until the ceremony, Thomas Markle has told the TMZ tabloid news website he is having the operation today and he won't be able to make it,
1: despite just hours earlier saying he would hate to miss such an historic occasion.
0: Some reports said he was skipping the wedding because of a heart attack. Other reports said he'd been asked to sit this one out after it came to light that he posed for what were supposed to be candid tabloid pictures of him preparing for the wedding. Whatever the case, The UK tabloid, The Mail, obtained a letter Megan wrote to her father about his absence, and they published large portions of it. We have got this letter,
1: which apparently is from her. It's written in her own hand. Very beautiful hand, actually. We're here
0: to analyze the actual handwriting. Let's broaden it now and let's just talk about the content of the letter. I mean, as Diana famously said, there are three people in this marriage. I felt, looking at the letter yesterday, that there were three people in this letter. There was clearly Megan and what 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 she feels about her father and what he's done. Meghan Markle sued the paper for printing the private letter, and earlier this year, a judge issued a summary judgment in her favor. A lot of people were surprised because a summary judgment is basically a ruling a judge issues without a jury. They can be pretty hard to get. The judge found that the mail had indeed violated Meghan's privacy when they printed the letter. The mail appealed that decision and argued that the case should go before a jury. And last week, the Court of Appeals said no-go and upheld the judge's verdict. Here Megan is talking to the New York Times about the win.
1: In terms of the appeal, I won the case, and this issue, frankly, has been going on when I had no children at all. Melody, I now have two children, as you know, so
0: it's an arduous process. But again, it's just me standing up for what's right, which I think is important across the board, be it in this case or in the other things we've been talking about today. At a certain point, no matter how difficult it is, you know the difference between right and wrong. You must stand up for what's right, and that's what I'm doing. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, we're gonna do something a little different. Later, we're gonna take some time to remember the designer Virgil Abloh, who died of cancer about a week ago. But first, we're talking about the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle's recent win over British tabloid The Mail, and what it means for privacy rights and the media's right to tell the truth.
1: So this dates back all the way to February 2019. KJ Yosman is a
0: former entertainment lawyer turned international correspondent who now writes for Variety
1: when People Magazine published an article which spoke with Megan's friends anonymously, um, so I think it was five or six, they mentioned a letter that Megan had written to her dad the previous (laughs) summer. And generally in the article, her dad, Thomas, he was not portrayed in a very flattering way. And so he then went to Mail on Sunday, and he wanted to put forward his side of the story, basically. So he shared a copy of the letter with them. And they printed quite a few extracts from the letter. And they also printed a lot of articles about what was in it. And based on that, Megan then sued the Mail on Sunday for breach of copyright and invasion of privacy. So the case hinged around whether Megan had a reasonable expectation of privacy. And the Mail on Sunday said she didn't for a couple of reasons. They said one, and this was the main one uh, with the recent hearing as well with the appeal, they were arguing that she knew the letter was going to be leaked and that she had written the letter in the knowledge that it was going to be leaked because at the time, Thomas was talking to TMZ all the time. He was talking to the mail all the time. He was going on TV to talk about her. So she knew that whatever she said to him would likely end up in the public domain. And there was other things as well. They said that she had also invaded her own privacy. So for example, with the People magazine, that was a quite a strong element of their argument that they felt that she had either given her consent to her friends speaking to people about her and telling them some pretty private things, how she cooked dinner for them and how she was painting her nails and she was writing speeches for Prince Harry. So really sharing quite intimate moments of her life. And they said either she consented to that or she even encouraged them to do it because she wanted to kind of combat some of the more negative stories that were out there. And then the other way that they said she had invaded her privacy was with this book, Finding Freedom, that was written by Omid Scobie and Carolyn Durand and that she'd collaborated with them. And so in those ways, and also with that book, they said that she'd actually given a copy of the letter to the authors of the book. So again, that she had no expectation this letter was going to be kept private. And the judge found that basically... What it came down to is really that the mail had just printed too much of the letter. I think he and the Court of Appeal judges who just ruled recently both said that if Mel and Sunday had printed less of the letter, they would have had a stronger argument and that they could have made the same points in the article, allowing her dad to put forward his side of the story without needing to print so much of the letter, basically. And for other reasons as well, the judge basically thought that she still did have a reasonable expectation of privacy and that printing the letter was not the most effective way for Thomas Markle to put forward his side of the story, that he could have done it without giving the letter to them on Sunday, and that really the letter had been an excuse to kind of publish something sensational rather than genuinely put something into the public domain that was necessary for the public to know, like if it was a politician or something like that.
0: The judge ruled that she did have a reasonable expectation of privacy. But why is that? Why would Meghan have retained that even though she's like a public figure whose father actually gave the letter?
1: It's a difficult one all the time with celebrities in the UK. I mean, we don't in the UK really have a privacy law. The Human Rights Act does cover privacy a little bit.
0: Unlike in the US, the UK doesn't have laws that specifically cover privacy. But they do adhere to the European Human Rights Act. Way back after World War II, a bunch of countries in Europe got together and formed the Council of Europe. And that's something different than the European Union. And at a convention, the countries came together to put down in writing the human rights they wanted to collectively protect. Stuff like the right to life, liberty, a fair trial, freedom from slavery. You know, the things we consider human
1: rights. They also protected the right to private life. It means that there's constantly this battle between the press and public figures as to how much the British press can print. And the truth is that the tabloids really have been neutered quite strongly by the courts. So there's a lot of disquiet in the British media about the fact that this law effectively has been introduced by the courts. So it's a different thing if our government says, okay, we're going to introduce a law and people can debate that and lobby groups can put forward different arguments as well as politicians. But when judges make that decision without any kind of public engagement, that's what concerns people. And it's just there's many different factors that can play into whether or not a celebrity wins. But increasingly in the UK, there's quite a strong privacy law coming about through the courts. Have there been other
0: cases where the tabloids have lost because they've printed too much or because they put out something about someone that was ultimately ruled something private about them? Um, Are there other cases like this?
1: Yeah. And in fact, Meghan's father-in-law, Prince Charles, won against the Mail on Sunday in a very similar case in 2006. That was the case where the Mail on Sunday had published his private diaries. And again, they said it was in the public interest because he'd written things about politicians and that sort of thing. And They said, well, that's important for the public to know. But actually, again, the court found that they were his private diaries and he was entitled to privacy for that. And then there have been other celebrities, the model Naomi Campbell one, and also one of the most seminal cases in Europe was actually Princess Caroline of Monaco. That was actually in Germany. But because the Human Rights Act applies across Europe, cases that are tried under it can affect other countries.
0: Princess Caroline has sued the German media for violating her privacy several times, but the case KJ is talking about is tied to pictures taken in 1999. In 2004, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that German courts have violated the princess's privacy when they allowed local magazines to print pictures of her and her family doing stuff like riding horses and sitting in cafes. The courts ruled that the public didn't have a legitimate interest in the
1: photos. And the case was a big blow to the paparazzi. In fact, that was one of the very first privacy cases that began to trickle through the UK courts as well. So is there any indication why a paper like the Mail or some of the other
0: tabloids would continue to print these really private things if they continue to get in trouble for this?
1: Well, I mean, it sells papers. Right? <laughs> so in fairness, I think it's, it's pretty straightforward. So the battle, they say, is between... Um, something that's genuine in the public interest and the public's interest in someone, right? So the public's interest in somebody doesn't always mean that there's an actual public interest to finding out private information about them. Although sometimes the two things can overlap. And in Meghan's case, she's fascinating. She's young, she's beautiful, she married a prince. And I think one of the really interesting things for the Brits is that she had a life before marrying into royalty, which not many other royal brides or royal spouses have had. Most of them have married in quite young. And so there's not much really to find out or to say about them. But because Meghan had her whole life before the royal family, she's just a very interesting character. And what was Meghan's response to the ruling? She was obviously very pleased. From her point of view, she believes that she's kind of striking a blow for everybody. Although, in fairness, there are not a lot of people, I suppose, in her position who would necessarily end up in that kind of battle with the newspaper. But she basically said that it was a moment not just for her, but for everybody who potentially is facing these kinds of issues. And what does this mean for the male? They lost the suit. What do they now have to do? When they lost the first time, they were told that they needed to pay Megan's costs, her legal costs, which were basically, I think, over a million dollars around that sort of sum. And that also they need to print a front page article detailing the fact that she has won. So that was put on hold until the appeal. But in fact, the Mail and Sunday have now said that they're considering appealing again to the Supreme Court. So it's unclear as to when or if they'll publish that article. But it sort of depends, I suppose, what the next steps are legally. And does it look like there's any indication that they could win on another appeal? I mean, it's very, I think it's very unlikely. At this point, if both the High Court and the Court of Appeal have both ruled against them, it would be surprising. I mean, I suppose it's not unheard of, but it would be very surprising. They'd also need to get permission to appeal to the Supreme Court, which they might be denied on the basis that they've already lost twice. So it's not very likely. So this is just one case. But it is a big deal,
0: because in both the U.S. and the U.K., it can be difficult to successfully sue a media company for printing or saying something you don't like. KJ told me that in the U.K., there are really only two ways to win. If you can prove that it violated your privacy, like Megan did,
1: or that it was an outright lie. This is the interesting thing, especially about her statement, because she does talk about lies a lot. The problem is, is actually what she was suing over was the truth because they'd printed something that was true, but it invaded her privacy. The other option is if there were lies printed about her that she would sue for libel. But she hasn't and she's never taken libel action because there's not been anything legally libelous that's been printed about her. So in terms of the more negative coverage, it's difficult because... A lot of it is subjective. There was a story that she'd thrown a tantrum over Tiara. I suppose it's open to interpretation unless she could prove that it never happened. But you see, if there had been any kind of, maybe she'd raised her voice slightly or whatever it is, which, you know, is normal when people are getting married in front of millions of people, then it would be very difficult for her to win. And you definitely don't want to go into a case like that where you, there's any chance you might lose. So that's sort of the difficulty. So this
0: case is focused on privacy. Privacy. The mail printing something that they should not have. But what about all of the racist coverage Meghan and Prince Harry have called out? In their interview with Oprah, they said the racism they experienced from the royal family and the UK press are a big part of why they left the UK in the first place.
2: Did you leave the country because of racism? It was a, long, it was a large
0: part of it. But a lot of people in the British media don't really accept that critique.
1: I know the British press do feel that they have unfairly been labelled as you know, racist and sexist. They don't necessarily agree with that description. And I think they would point, for example, to their coverage of other public figures. For example, Kate Middleton, who came in 10 years ago for a lot of very similar kind of articles as well. In terms of things written about her class status and, you know, she was nicknamed Waity Katie because they said she didn't do anything except wait for Prince William to propose. And for a long time, actually, in fact, just before Meghan joined the royal family, there was uh, really quite a battle going on between Prince William and Kate and the press because the press had basically called them lazy and said that all that she and William do is go on holidays all the time. And actually, it was Meghan joining the family that, in a way, gave them a sort of fresh focus. And then suddenly, the spotlight was on Meghan. So, of course, this is what some in the UK press are saying in their own defense.
0: But Meghan's supporters have pointed to what seems like a double standard for her. It's something Meghan herself called out in her interview with Oprah. Kate was called weighty Katie, waiting to
1: marry William. While I imagine that was really hard, and I do, I can't picture what that felt like. This is not the same. And if a member of
0: his family will comfortably say, we've all had to deal with things that are rude, rude and racist are not the
1: same. Mm.
0: When Kate Middleton was pregnant, the male ran a picture of her touching her baby bump. They characterized it as tender in the headline. The male ran a similar picture of Meghan Markle when she was pregnant, but implied that the simple act of her touching her stomach was somehow motivated by pride or vanity. But even if we take away some of the more ambiguous coverage like that, we're still left with a lot of blatant racism. When Meghan and Harry announced their engagement, the Mail Online ran a headline that said, quote, almost straight out of Compton. Another tabloid, the Daily Star, asked if Harry was marrying into gangster royalty. The Daily Mail ran a picture of Meghan and Harry with a headline that said, yes, They're joyfully in love. So why do I have a niggling worry about this engagement picture? The Mail on Sunday referred to Meghan's rich and exotic DNA and called her mom a dreadlocked African-American lady from the wrong side of the tracks. A BBC presenter who was later fired compared Meghan and Harry's baby to a chimpanzee. And don't get me started on all the awful stuff Pierce Morgan has said. In this critique, it isn't new. In 2016, the European Commission Against Racism and Intolerance found that hate speech among traditional media, particularly tabloid newspapers, continues to be a serious problem. But it's not just racism that shaped the way Meghan Markle is talked about by the UK press. KJ told me there's also nuance and difference between the way British people and American people understand the royal family.
1: I think in terms of context, there's definitely a huge divide in terms of how the Brits and the Americans firstly see the royal family and also how they see Meghan. And in terms of the royal family, I think in America, they're seen as celebrities. And in the UK, they have always tried not to be celebrities. And that's the biggest difference. That's not to say that there isn't racism and sexism as well, because that has played a part. But I think, There was concerns about her being a celebrity and coming into this family that really have a very weird role in our society. I mean, the Queen is actually the British head of state. The Prime Minister has weekly meetings with her. It's only a figurehead role. She would never really exercise that power. But in theory, she still is the head of state. So she's not a celebrity, but she's not a politician either. And they exist in this weird bubble where they kind of obviously go against everything that society is moving in, in terms of nepotism and all that kind of thing. They're in their positions simply by virtue of being born to another prince or princess, which is crazy in today's society. And I think they're very aware of that, that they have to be very, very careful because they just have to look over to our neighbours in France to see what happens to a royal family when you piss off the public, right? You get your head chopped off. Their whole institution is about protecting themselves and don't do anything to antagonize the public because you're never going to please everyone. And so I think that was one of the clashes that Megan coming into it, it was very difficult both for her, but for them as well, because she was used to having a voice and being someone with a platform. And now she suddenly had this amazing platform from which she could speak. But the topics on which she wanted to speak were not topics that the royal family would traditionally ever touch. Politics is just an absolute no-go because the Queen has to work with whoever the public elects. So one year it's one prime minister, the next year it's another prime minister. She has to work with all of them. We really don't have a concept of
0: this in the U.S. because we don't have figurative heads of state. So when a politician in the U.K. wins, it really doesn't matter how the Queen or the royal family personally feel about that electee's politics. Because the Queen has to work with that person regardless. So it makes sense for the royal family to just say nothing. And this also applies to international heads of state. Remember Trump's awkward visit to Windsor Castle?
1: It was through the George IV gates that the presidential convoy arrived for what must have been, for Donald Trump, the most eagerly anticipated part of his visit. On the other side of the quadrangle, the Queen watched and waited patiently to meet her latest visitor from the White House. She, of course, has done this many times before. It doesn't matter that the Queen may have hated Trump. We don't know, and it's important that we don't know, because when he was president and he came to the UK, she had to host him. And how awkward if she'd been out there saying, you know, down with Trump, and then he he comes for a state visit. I mean, that would have real repercussions for trade relationships, political relationships. So they've always had to be really, really careful. The other part of this, Brits just may not like Americans. I think some of the negativity has actually been anti-Americanism rather than perhaps more than other things. Again, that's not to say, you know, there's definitely sexism, definitely some racism, but it really, I think it really is, a lot of it is anti-Americanism and this idea of this Hollywood actress coming into London and into Kensington Palace and she does yoga and she eats acai, you know, bowls or whatever. I think that culture clash for the media was quite um it was just a great story basically and from that perspective that started it but then also I think there was concern about Meghan and Harry's commercial relationships that they were nurturing which obviously have now having broken away from the family they're now free to go and explore with Spotify and Netflix and all that kind of thing but again as members of the royal family it's a very difficult position because The taxpayers pay for the houses, we pay for the royal train, we pay for everything. And so the idea that they're using the platform and the money and the access that we give them as members of the public to go and make deals and to line their own pockets by making deals with Netflix and Spotify or whoever, it would, again, be something that would sit very, very badly with the public. From the newspaper's perspective, I think, again, there was a little bit of anti-Americanism in, you know, well, here is this woman coming from America and she's trying to cash in, you know, on the royal family.
0: The latest ruling in Meghan's favor sets both the legal and social precedent. And when it comes down to it, press outlets might decide it's not worth the risk to run lower profile stories that might get them sued. But the legal fees they may have to shell out for printing salacious things about super famous people don't really outweigh the millions of eyes who will read the story
1: being able to break those kinds of stories still puts them in a position where they're like leading the tabloids, for example. So it's not just, I think, a monetary value. There's there's a value in terms of of the male's own brand at being able to break those kinds of stories and having that kind of insider access. And I think from that point of view, the financial sort of punishment effectively probably won't put them off.
0: But Some say they are worried that cases like this will prevent media outlets from publishing more important stories or publishing it all. Think about what happened with Gawker Media in the U.S. In 2012, former pro wrestler Hulk Hogan sued Gawker for posting portions of a sex tape that featured him and a woman named Heather Clem. Hulk Hogan eventually won that case in 2016, and the amount he was awarded basically shut Gawker down until the site was relaunched under different management this year. For some journalists, Meghan Markle's win sets a dangerous precedent that could mean more cases like what we saw with Gawker.
1: So in terms of the precedent, it's not great news for newspapers because every time there's another privacy case like this, it builds this case law that makes it increasingly harder for newspapers to print stories. And although that may sound like good news for someone like Meghan Markle, the law will apply equally to Megan and to Naomi Campbell and to Donald Trump or to Boris Johnson. And so that's I think what the newspapers are concerned about is that at the point at which, let's say, there's a a story about something that a politician has done, or even the royal family, I mean. Prince Andrew, for example. I mean, Mail on Sunday was the one that broke the story that Prince Andrew was still hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein after he'd returned from prison for the paedophilia conviction. So that is a story that potentially would not be printed if this privacy law continues. And that's what worries the newspapers, that although, yes... For Megan, from her point of view, of course she's pleased. It's contributing to this atmosphere that it's increasingly difficult to publish stories about public figures, and sometimes those stories can really be really vital stories that actually the public really does need to know. So that's the concern as well.
0: After the break, we talk about the legacy of fashion designer Virgil Abloh. The other week on the show, we shared this conversation we had with former NBA All-Star Dwayne Wade. We talked fashion because besides being one of basketball's greatest, Wade is also kind of a fashionista. And he told us this story about the first time he went to Milan for Fashion Week and he went backstage after a show.
2: Well, I get to the back and Kanye West is back there. I know Kanye from Chicago over the years and everything. And At the time, this other guy that I did not know his name, who later the world would know as Virgil. It was Virgil Abloh,
0: right before he became a fashion household name.
2: When I was out there in Milan in Paris, I was like communicating with Virgil to be like, hey, man, y'all got any barbers out here? And, you know, I don't know what he do. I just know Kanye (laughs) gave me his number. Like, hey, could, you know, contact him if you need anything.
0: That's hilarious. I love that you're like texting Virgil like he's the plug. Like, we're going to get a haircut. Yeah, I thought he's the
2: plug. I'm sorry, Virgil. I was like, bro, you got a barber or something, bro? He's like, what?
0: It was a funny moment, because Virgil ended up being a super well-known designer. And even a celebrity like Dwayne Wade was a little embarrassed that he didn't know who he was. A few days after that episode dropped while everyone was recovering from Thanksgiving, the world learned that Virgil Abloh had died of a rare form of cancer. He was just 41. And here Virgil is talking about Off-White, the brand he created.
2: And so, as I started thinking about clothing, I was always like drawn to what my initial interest was, and that was
1: t-shirts. For Off-White, my contribution was I would take a young idea of streetwear, this idea that t-shirts and hoodies are important, but making that in the same factories as uh, luxury houses.
0: Virgil Abloh reached heights in fashion that a lot of designers never get to, all before he turned 40. He was an innovator in the way that he took street fashion, the stuff people were wearing anyway, and elevated it to high fashion. Virgil is just one of several influential Black men who've died recently before they turned 50. And these deaths, they take a toll on the fans, especially Black men who are forced to constantly think about their own mortality.
2: I am David Dennis Jr. I'm a senior writer at The Undefeated. So Virgil Abloh was, I mean, he had become a household name in in fashion, and he sort of penetrated a segment of fashion that I think we don't see a lot of Black folks get to. I mean, his off-white brand had become like probably the definitive sort of hype beast blend of urban and high-end fashion in a way that we don't traditionally see. He rose to the ranks of Being a top person at Louis Vuitton, he was designing hip-hop albums. He designed the Watch the Throne cover. He was part of the Kanye West sort of influencer crew of people. I mean, Off-White's collaboration with Nike, you cannot find anywhere. I mean, it's impossible to find unless you're going to spend $500, $1,000, $10,000 for the shoe. So he had sort of gotten into a space that we just don't generally get to and sort of brought that level of fashion with a lot of barriers for black folks and sort of blended those in a way that we really hadn't seen.
0: So the piece you wrote is titled On um, Black Men Who Die Too Soon. And in it, you're inspired by Virgil Abloh's death, who of course, after a battle with cancer that most people did not know about, um, we found out that he'd passed away. But in your piece, you also talk about some other high profile deaths of black men that have happened recently. What inspired you to write it from this perspective?
2: Well, it really started a couple weeks ago, the Friday before Thanksgiving, I had gotten um, an advanced screening of the DMX documentary on HBO. When I first came in, I was just thinking about this day. Like, you know, the day when I walk out. I read more books in a hole than I did in my whole bit. What were you reading? Some hood novels. Daniel Steele joins, uh, you know, read the Bible again. Can't get too much of that. It's really tough to see sort of like that last year of his life where he gets out of jail for tax fraud, I believe. And then he goes through rehab and relapse. So it was a really tough watch. I mean, I was a huge DMX fan. I mean, like DMX was the the best in the world to me and, and got me through times in my life that were tough. And I, and I love DMX. And I was writing that article and sort of grappling with his death. I mean, he died at 51 from a heart attack. And in the middle of writing that article, we see that young Dolph is killed and he's 36 and gunned down in his hometown in front of a cookie store that he likes.
0: Fans of Memphis-based rapper Young Dolph came to pay their respects, still in disbelief at this loss. They came to reflect at a memorial set up outside Makita's Cookies where Dolph was shot and killed Wednesday afternoon.
2: And so that had been on my mind all through the break. And then Virgil Abloh passes at 41. And comes out of nowhere, obviously. We didn't know that he was struggling with this rare form of cancer for two years. And on the day that we were sort of getting more and more information, it's Chadwick Boseman's, what would be his 45th birthday. So it's all just sort of coming at once, right? Like just breaking through it at, at one moment where it's just like all these men, these black men who we admire and love and have different connections to. I didn't even mention MF Doom in there, who was like one of my favorite rappers of all time, also.
0: MF Doom is often referred to as your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. He died unexpectedly around this time last year. He was 49.
2: Living off borrowed time, the clock ticks faster. That'll be the hour they knock the slick blast. Like all of like you it's you're not untouched by this. And so I just tried to put into words just how overwhelming the entire feeling is. It's not just like one thing, you know, like this is violence or Drugs or quote unquote natural causes. But as we know, there's no such thing as natural causes in America when you're talking about black folks, right? Like we talk about our health. So just trying to grapple with that emotion and what that feels like is sort of where I came to write the article.
0: And, you know, of course, we found out about doom about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And so it is something that is like, It feels constant. It feels like you're always looking up and hearing about the premature death of a black man. And that's high profile deaths, right? We're not talking about also family members and friends and people who we know in our own lives. And you talk about in the article just sort of like how that also affects you. And then you're like, you know, trying to eat more salad, trying to like do these things to like get around these health disparities. But there are these different factors that really do sort of contribute to why life expectancy for Black men when compared to white men is not as high. Of course, that gap is closing in a lot of ways, but there's still a gap. Mm -hmm. And like here in D.C., I live in D.C., right? The two things that go into that for younger Black men, um, it's homicide. For older Black men, it's heart disease, right? And cancer. And we know that those are built from health disparities. Could you talk a little bit more about some of the factors that are like unique to Black men and what they face? Just talk about them broadly.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, like the the constant sort of refrain in culture and especially rap music is like we weren't supposed to make it past 25, right? You know, you make it past 25, you're on borrowed time. You made it out. You didn't get gunned down. You didn't get killed by a cop or whatever happens to you. You made it at 25, but like, then what? <laughs> you know, like then you got to like take care of yourself as you get older. You have to watch your blood pressure. You have to Watch what you eat. You got to get your colonoscopy. You know, when you are in a place where the idea is just like survival from these outward things that happen, you, you let that stuff slide, you know, or you, you know, even if you do get checked up, I mean, I'm, you know, like we're talking about these high profile men who had access to the best healthcare you could have. I'm sure Chadwick Boseman was getting physicals and tests all the time to go put on this Black Panther suit. And so the, even if you do all that stuff, that doesn't solve the environmental racism being raised in the area where you have a higher chance of having cancer or the fact that like you had to eat Hot Pockets and Hungry Man to get by and frozen pizzas all through like the first 20 years of your life. So there's just like all of these things that it feels insurmountable. The idea that like if these very wealthy well-connected men are still facing these issues. Like what chance do we have? So it just feels, you know, like I said, and it feels like you're drowning, like you're swimming upstream um, no matter, no matter what you, no matter what you do.
0: So that was like sort of where I was going with this. On the one hand, we don't want these issues to be ignored because obviously like the first step is like we have to talk about it. We have to call these disparities out, right? But sometimes as the subject that's being talked about, right, you as a black mammy, as a black woman, it can feel like, it can honestly feel like just a depressing thing that doesn't have an end. And then that's the end of the conversation. It feels like the awareness part is there, but the solutions part is missing, right? Do you think there's a way we could be having the conversation? or maybe not even we, right? Like we're talking about this because like this is high profile. This is something that happens. But as we've mentioned, Mm -hmm. it feels like a pile on, you know, if this were the one conversation we'd be having, that would be something different. And I'm wondering, like, is there a way that we could have these conversations that doesn't then feel like a pile on for the folks that it's supposed to comfort? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean?
2: I think the best, the best sort of conversation is just information at this point. Like it's, you know, it's, I, I don't know what to do when, like, we're talking about mortality rates, and as we're talking about it, like, n- nine people in the government, <laughs> you know, have decided that if you get pregnant, you could just just die. You know, like, if you're at a high-risk uh, pregnancy, just just sorry. You know, like, it it feels like us having the conversation feels like not enough, like you were sort of alluded to. Like, it feels like... We, Like, we need help here. Like, y'all got to do something to sort of make this right, to make this more equal. Like, for the most part, we are trying to do what we need to do to stay alive. You know, like, Black folks want to stay alive. You know, we're doing what we can, and I think we need systemic change for that to happen.
0: When the fashion world loses an innovator, like... Virgil Abloh, a Black man who reached heights in fashion that we don't see often, what does that mean? Um, what, what, what makes that loss, you know, feel that much more devastating?
2: Well, I think one of the reasons it's, it's devastating for the fashion industry is that there's just not a lot of Virgil Ablohs in spaces that he's at. Like, he was doing everything. As you see when Black folks get in those high positions, they know one Black person and they reach out to that Black person. They ask them to do the things over and over again and you saw off-white everywhere, right? Because these industries that are populated by white folks, they just copycat. You need a Black person, you go to the same one. So it's a huge void. And so my hope, obviously, was that they would look at somebody like Virgil and say, wow, there is a huge community of folks who can contribute to this industry. Let's amplify those voices and, and and do collaborations to get them in this place that they need to be but I'm doubtful because that's never never really how they do things I mean chances are they're just gonna be like Pharrell just come and do all the stuff we wanted Virgil to do you know and it sounds cynical but that's just generally what they do you know I'm not a big high fashion person I don't have Balenciaga and all that stuff just hanging around but I do know that, like, mostly what they're doing is just copying urban wear. You know, like, you look at those shoes, you go to uh, Saks or one of those places, you look at Louis Vuitton, things like that, Nikes and and New Balance and just, you know, slapping $500, $800 price tags on them and not really doing anything innovative in their space. Like, if you're going to come into the urban space, like, at least add something to the culture and bring in folks who know how to sort of blend the two. So, yes, I mean, and Virgil had occupied that space. So we'll see... What happens, I don't have a ton of faith in them using this as, as the right example they should.
0: And that's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. I work with a great team every week. The show's producer is Alicia Key. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Our director of audio is Graylin Brashear. Big thanks to KJ Yostman and David Dennis Jr. for talking to us. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Be sure to rate, subscribe, and of course, tell a friend.